Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 15th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm William Hosea, and in today's broadcast, we're continuing a perpetual conversation on the state of race relations across this country, beginning in Monroe County. To help us peel back the layers of racial understanding, conflict, and harmony, we have assembled some change agents from the Bloomington area. With us are Bill Vance, president of the Monroe County branch of the NAACP National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, Maquiba Reese, a social justice advocate and assistant director of the Kelly Office of Diversity Initiatives, Jada B., a, a social activist and core council member of the, of the local Black Lives Matter Bloomington, and Martin Law, an associate instructor at Indiana University, a local musician, and another core council member of Black Lives Matter Bloomington. To all, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. And uh, I hope I, I have the titles correct. If when you respond to questions, if you want to correct it, that's fine. My apologies, but uh, uh, you all are so diverse and so busy. You have these lengthy titles, so I hope I got it all right. Okay, Good we're point. going to... Uh, go ahead and get started. We, we have a host of topical themes we want to address. Uh, and, and I think if we start local and go out, or, or when do you think we should maybe go national and come back into Bloomington to make it more concise? I think we're going to end up going in both directions regardless. Okay. So we'll all right. So, back. All right. So uh, let's talk about the state of race relations across the country. We This is 2020. If anything, will go down in history as one of the most memorable years in our nation's history and also for the world because what has been going on in America has been impacting the world, uh, starting with uh, the unfortunate killing of individuals uh, by law enforcement, um, be it argu argumentative as far as justified or not, people have been killed and we've had the unfortunate, horrible luxury of seeing this take place before us and it has sparked reaction um, in the streets and legislatures. Uh, we have seen um, police chiefs resign and we have seen core members of their leadership team resign. We've seen uh, legislators promise to make changes. We've seen legislators lock arms and protest with protesters. Uh, we've seen, of course, the media, both sides, try to spin it in particular directions and leave it up to the audience to determine their thoughts. But nevertheless, that coupled with COVID, that coupled with you know, a tanking economy that is trying to stay on life support, that coupled with high unemployment. And when America uh, has high unemployment, the black community is on life support. With all that going on, let's just throw that out for just a brief moment to get an idea from everyone or an observation from everyone. So I just pose that as the first topic. Anyone care to comment? I mean, I can start. And I wanted to uh, allude that I am, uh, I also have the lens of a social worker, so I have my master's in social work, um, so this is McCleaver speaking. All right. Um, but I think that as far as it relates to the race relations within America, I think 
I'm sure we all can agree to the fact that this is something that is absolutely ongoing and um, it affects us in multiple ways. It's not just one entity that's affecting um, the black and brown population. And also, you know, our LGBTQIA community as well. This um, uh, racial injustice is affecting us, as you were saying, Clarence, like also in our health disparities, right? With the COVID-19, the pandemic, um, millions of people are on, um, are don't have jobs, economics, uh, uh, the economy. So I think that with the racial, uh, it's just like this sense of feeling like like not being stable, right? It's like this place of not feeling stable. And then it's also this place of not having a safe space, right? And so it's like, where do you go? Because <laughs> now we're like confined into our, our houses as well. So it's like, where do you go to create this uh, type of safe space? And I think that that's where these different organizations, although we're not monolithic, of course, we know that. But I think that that's where the, uh, we go to try kind of seek and figure out how to support one another and to um, do our best to support each other in, um, in such unjust times. Um, and some people might say that these times aren't, um, I mean, they mirror the same things that, that, that took place in 1965 um, before the Voting Act, right? Uh, Voting Act um, that London B. Johnson uh, signed in. So I could talk more about that, but I'll, of course, uh, yield my time. <laughs> Anyone else? Uh, Brother Vance? Yes, uh, I have been on a couple of um, uh, calls. Uh, the chief of police, uh, Chief Decoff, was on one. And, you know, I'd, I'd express that, you know, he had said that he was horrified and frustrated with, you know, all the, all the violence that was going on. And, you know, I, I've thought about it a lot. You know, the Eric Garner case and now the George Floyd case. And these were blatant, you know, murders uh, with, with, with a video and, you know, audio. And why, you know, I really believe that when you, after, I believe a police department needs to, just like they normally do, do a, a thorough investigation of their officer, make sure that officer follow procedures for that circumstance. And after they've done a thorough and fair uh, investigation, which is what our police department does here in Bloomington, having been on the Board of Public Safety 10 years myself, if they find that that officer did violate procedures for that circumstance, I believe that the, the police department should uh, pro have the officer prosecuted themselves. And why do I say that? Because here we are, we have individuals calling for the defunding of the police department. You look up the word defunding, that means cut off their funding. That means no money. And you know, we, we can't go, we can't live life without some kind of law enforcement. You know, we cannot defund our police department and military. So I do believe that the police and the military have got to look at their people after they've done a fair and thorough investigation, they've got to do the right thing or in circumstances, even when the police officer did act uh, according to procedure in a certain set of circumstances, the, the, atmosphere, the atmosphere is so polarized that, that I don't care whether they follow procedure or their life could have been threatened or not. You know, the, the, the community is, just, is gonna cry 
that here we are, more police brutality. So the police departments are going to have to take charge and begin to get their police officers under control. And if they've done wrong, you cannot support a police officer or a military person that has done wrong because you're gonna jeopardize the lives of, of citizens and other police or military people. That's um, Bill, you bring up uh, an interesting point about defunding the police. We're gonna get into that a little bit later. But before we do, I'm really curious, <clears throat> what, what does the military have to do with any of this? Well, when you, you talk about the militarization of the police, you know, we get a Bearcat, that, that vehicle is, is armor only. It, it is not a, a turret where you can fire on citizens. Yet we scream, you know, we scream that we're getting too militarized in our community. And, even, and that, bear, that Bearcat looks like a, you know, to some kids, a cool vehicle, you know. So, you know, I'm all for protecting our officers. And not only that, you know, sometimes, you know, ambulances have to go in locations where it's dangerous. They get fired on, but there are people that are, are needing assistance. I wouldn't mind if we had a vehicle like that for, for hospitals. You know, they've got their equipment in there. They're, you know, they're trying to treat somebody. You know, bullets were flying. You know, they could go through what, 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 uh, whatever the uh, metal is. You can go through it pretty easy. But with the armored vehicle, it might uh, be a little bit more difficult. So okay. that's why the, the militarization of the police. You know, we're always talking about every yeah. time something yeah. goes wrong. Well, uh, one thing, one thing, Bill, that uh, an observation that I have when when we talk about the military involvement in some of the events uh, of this year, uh, primarily this summer, uh, what comes to mind is when the military or the um, uh, I would well, I'll say militarized forces were used to clear a path for the president to go to a church to have a photo op, uh, and even the commanders came out and said that was a wrong application of armed forces and they regretted being a part of that. And that was a direct pushback to our commander in chief uh, who has this mindset that uh, he has all these generals at his beck and call. And so uh, I can see I can see your point, uh, uh, William, uh, where there is a sense that, mil that police have become overly militarized, both in the gear they wear and um, some of the, even I've always contended, some of the vehicles look more menacing in some respects. Um, and, and it just, there's a psychological advantage that they're trying to create for that, and we all know that. Uh, if we can, if we can get some comments from some we've not heard from uh, Martin or Jada, we've not yet heard from you regarding just your observations of what's been transpiring so far in 2020, if we can hear from you. I'll, I'll go ahead and take that. Um, so <clears throat> in the, the wake of what happened to George Floyd, what happened to Breonna Taylor, what happened to Tony McDade, what happened, you know, uh, over and over and over again. I mean, I think what you're seeing is is a buildup of um, death after death after death in a short period of time when we were all supposed to be quarantining, when we were all supposed to be separated from each other anyways. And, um, you know, Martin is 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 from the area of, of, of uh, Minneapolis where this happened, so he can speak a little bit more to um, how crazy this situation really was, um, and yet how also everyday and normal um, it was. Um, and and I think I think given that we were all quarantined, given that we were um, you know in this lockdown situation uh, across the country, 
Um, white people were having to confront this in a way that they hadn't before. Um, and so it was everywhere. I mean, it was, it, it, you know, it's, it was the main topic of discussion. And so I think what you're seeing is, is that ramping up of, of support uh, for uh, the movement for Black lives and, and, and for confronting the real police problem that we have in the country um, is, is almost a, a byproduct of the coronavirus in that we, we were focused on this one thing that makes us depressed to think about. So something else came along. I mean, it's sort of something that has to do with the news cycle too, because police officers have been standing on black people's necks for, you know, hundreds of years. And we have seen footage of them being on black people's necks for a while now that has made the news. We've seen this before, but because um, of the microscope of the coronavirus, it, it sort of made it be more urgent. Um, and in particular, I think more urgent, um, not necessarily um, for the black community, because this is just stuff that we have seen and we know about. We know that police do this. We know that this happens. But um, that rather um, white America was seeing something that they weren't normally used to seeing. Um, and, you know, in terms of how, um, the reaction to it, um, I think. I think William, you sort of mentioned like what people were surprised at, at this reaction to it. I don't. I don't know if I was necessarily surprised or or whatever, but I know that it's it's definitely a um, a, a crucial moment. We, you were seeing a crucial moment happen. So, all right, and uh, Martin, if you care to weigh in on on this as well. Yeah, yes. Um, as Jada said, um, you know, I, I'm from right around the area where the George Floyd uh, lynching happened. So it, yeah, when, when that happened, it was it, it really impacted me. The, you know, the corner where he was lynched was the corner where I waited for the bus uh, every day to go, uh, you know, go out to the mall with my friends, to go to the University of Minnesota, um, you know, the store uh, where they called the police on him. I went and bought my chips every day. You know, that, I, I know that corner. I, I lived within blocks of there for 30 years. And, um, you know, so, so, so as Jada said, it, it's the sort of thing where um, seeing it happen was shocking. It was, it was um, but not necessarily surprising. Uh, you know, we all have had experiences, I'm sure, with police where we thought th this could be it. Um, and Minneapolis police are, you know, are, are especially like that. I have to say, I guess I felt less in danger for my life around Bloomington police uh, than I did around Minneapolis police. So, um, you know, I, I, I guess that's something going for uh, BPD is that they don't, I don't get the sense they want to kill me every day. Um, <laughs> uh, we should probably shoot for a higher bar than that though. Um, so, and you know, I, I, I like uh, one of the things that, um, that, that um, uh, William Vance said, uh, he, he said that you know, even if we find that uh, Officer uh, uh, Chauvin, who, who murdered George Floyd, did nothing wrong, you know, that's actually a sign of a bigger problem. And I think that's one of the things that's coming really to the forefront in 2020 is this notion that a lot of times uh, folks have not done anything uh, uh, against policy, but that instead the policy itself is set up to destroy uh, Black people. And that's why in 2020, I think we're seeing greater push toward structural transformation. Uh, it, you know, not just we've got to get the bad cops out. It's we need to 
fundamentally change how policing works. And this is something that's really coming to the fore in 2020 because we are seeing that it's entirely possible that, that, that you know, these officers in Minneapolis or in, uh, in Louisville or wherever, uh, or uh, Kenosha, didn't violate policy. Well, that's not comforting. That's actually a much bigger problem. And so I think 2020 is really a time where we're seeing more people uh, getting behind the notion of structural change rather than sort of individual punishment. Uh, because because it's the system itself that's a danger to us. Um, Jada, you actually touched on something that I was going to ask you about anyway. Black Lives Matter has been uh, enjoying unprecedented support from across the country, um, especially after the George Floyd uh, murder. It surged from 27% to about 60%. But today, those numbers uh, kind of dropped and they hover right around 49%. Uh, even after this video of uh, the Kenosha police shooting. So are you at all surprised and, and, and if so, did you anticipate the drop off in support? And is 49% support still good enough compared to what it was prior to uh, the, the rise? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, you know, first, first and foremost, I always like to clarify, because this is always something that, uh, you know, questions we get asked a lot is that there's always a difference between the hashtag Black Lives Matter the movement for Black Lives Matter nationally, and then what we do locally as an organization that's named after that. And so um, that movement for Black Lives, getting a surge in support has been, I mean, I don't, I, 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 again, I don't know that I was surprised um, because it's what we're hoping for, that people would be, would see these things and, and, and care. Um, so I don't know that, that surprise is the right word, but I think, um, happy that like finally we were getting some traction finally as a national topic that this was that people were seeing it and waking up to it and, and wanting to do something about it um the drop we call that the black lash or the white lash um a lot of times um and and, and when we're talking about that that we we saw we saw that coming of course it was going to happen of of course the reaction to a surge for support for Black people is always going to be met with a crackdown on Black people and their rights. Um, you see Donald Trump suggesting that we ban uh, anti-racist training and anti-bias training and, and actually enacting that for the federal government so that contracts are being dropped and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, that is just a pretty standard way to react to Black people, which is that, you know, the minute they want us to speak our truth, like we're asked to be pushed to the forefront, we're asked to be leaders. And then once we are in those leadership positions, we are criticized and demeaned over and over and over again. And we are met with resistance to the change that, that white culture says that it wants to enact. And, and we've seen that a lot here locally um, where we're being asked to be leaders. We're being asked to step forward. We're, we're being asked to say, hey, how can we fix the systems and situations that we are, are, are in so that we don't end up looking like uh, Kenosha, so that we don't end up like uh, Louisville or, or, or uh, you know, uh, St. Louis or any of these other places. But then when those suggestions are put forward and the ideas for change are put forward, especially from a progressive Black point of view, there is always met with this extreme resistance to change. And one could say that that's the human condition. Change is not something that um, humans do very well. 
But I think also that is something that white supremacy does not want. White supremacy does not want that. And white liberalism says, I want to say that I want that, but I don't want to do anything about it. You know, some, some of that support, the rise in support was fashionable. Some of it was opportunistic is, and, uh, and and large part is kind of like the bump that candidates get after uh, a convention. But it has kind of settled down to about 49% now. So, so I, I kind of get the sense that, that that's going to be, be there for a while. Um, I, I was, anytime I think about people who've never supported Black Lives Matter coming out and marching, this image of Mitt Romney, you know, putting on a t-shirt and going out there and marching, you know, just makes me want to go get a stiff drink because uh, I, I didn't believe it any more than I could see it. No. Or Nancy Pelosi and Ken and Kente Claw, like. <laughs> well, I believe them more than Mitt Romney. Well, but but st- I don't I don't know. I for me, Mitt Romney and Nancy Pelosi are about the same thing. So okay, um, <laughs> it was definitely for me seeing people that I was I was I yeah I never thought would be marching with Black Lives were doing so. I, I don't know that that was a good thing. I don't know that that I don't know that that helped anything other than change people's perspectives of them. But I don't know that it helped. Black lives at all. I, I, if I can interject, um, so that some of the stuff kind of alludes to performative activism, right? And so performative activism is when people put on a show and they want to presume or assume that they are dignified to the cause. And I think that there are times when people uh, truly do want to show their colors and then individuals kind of downplay them. And it's like, how do you kind of um, help to mitigate that? Um, that sense, because I know a handful of individuals who um, want to be a part of it, but then they're pushed aside. Like, no, you're not good enough to be a part of this movement. No, we don't need you part of this movement. When all actuality, we need as many people as possible. We have, we need, there's a need for everyone to be a part of a movement for social justice um, in this, in this space, because that's what we'll need. We'll need individuals, but what we don't need are people speaking on behalf of Black people, right? Speaking for us and not with us, right? So I think that that's the issue that I've seen, even locally, like some individuals, some white people will speak up for Black people that they've never even inter- inter- encountered. I'm like, don't be speaking for me. <laughs> um, if you have something to say, or if you want to add something, then be a part of my collective uh, community. And that also starts with me too. Like I can't, say, come talk to me, and then shut them down to come talk to me, right? And so I think that everyone has their own uh, experiences, but I think that it's really it's really um, detrimental to speak on behalf of a population that you, that individuals don't even interact with, you know what I mean? So that's kind of like my thesis with that. I think uh, at this point, let's, let's do a quick ID for those who have just tuned in to our show here on Bring It On. Uh, with us this evening are Bill Vance, president of the Monroe County branch of the NAACP, uh, Maquiba Reese, a um, master of social work and, at IU, uh, Indiana University and social justice advocate and assistant director of the Kelly Office of Diversity Initiatives. Jada B., a social activist and core council member of the local Black Lives Matter in Bloomington. And also Martin Law, an associate instructor at Indiana University, a local musician and another core council member of Black Lives Matter here in Bloomington. If, if I could pivot just for a moment and ask uh, Bill uh, Vance a question uh, related to the NAACP. Um, Sir. 
Uh, we have witnessed a, a succession of high-profile murders of Black men and women, and we talked a little bit, you alluded to that earlier, at the hands of police and citizens in the past several years, not just this election year, but in the past several years. Now, the Monroe County branch of the NAACP uh, historically has not taken a, a very vocal leadership role as other NAACPs might have had, but I believe in our conversation, you have mentioned that you choose to work behind the scenes, um, but other NAACPs tend to be a little bit more visible in having maybe press conferences or having statements that are read um, uh, to the powers that be, or even, or even leading protest marches, rallies, or letters to the editor in the paper. Can you enlighten us as, uh, if, you know, can we expect more given this era that we're in, this era of Trump and this election year and the preponderance of events that are transpiring? what the Monroe County branch of the NAACP may do to sort of ratchet the attention up to these, these issues and, and be that uh, leverage of change uh, that, that other NAACPs have, have sort of taken to do. Can you respond to that? Absolutely. Um, we will absolutely, you know, I will, you know, when, we, when it's authorized, I will, I will definitely uh, pull every stop that we're supposed to pull. I will be involved exactly like you've read that the NACP should be involved. In the, you know, the events did not happen in Bloomington. And yes, you know, we know that Bloomington is the home of Indiana University, one of the, one of the greatest universities in the world. And yes, we know that these kind of events get polarized because a university like that is around. Um, and we, so we, we know that, yes, these things could go on, but see right now, the reason that we did not, that I didn't go forward and try to make a statement, um, number one, um, I have to get authorization from our national uh, office before I can do any direct action. I have to. And also I found out that I have to get permission from the national office before I can participate and speak in any uh, direct action, even by another organization. We, but I will tell you that I have gone ahead and spoken at other, uh, events that other uh, organizations have put on, uh, like say for instance, when Trayvon Martin was killed, the you know there was a uh, one of the one of the ladies groups put on a march, and we you know we marched and and we I spoke and uh, uh, then Dr. McCoy spoke and some others spoke uh, about how we feel about Trayvon Martin and, and what happened with him. And you know, my son was the same age as Trayvon Martin, and so was Dr. McCoy's. So we spoke, I had a hoodie on, you know, and I talked about what a hoodie, you know, that, you know, I ran, I was an athlete, you know, I ran track and cross country, and we used these hoodies, you know, to keep, you know, when we, after we sweat, put it up so we don't catch cold, or maybe just don't want to get cold, the ear is cold, or whatever, if, it's, if you're out running and it's, you know, sub-zero temperatures. So, um, we have, you know, I've, uh, you know, we've had rallies at the courthouse, uh, no, at the plaza, 
you know, at City Hall. And I spoke at this one rally and I was trying to, you know, I was telling the, you know, the crowd, look, at the end of the day, I've got a son, at the end of the day, cooperate with the police and, and I want my son to come home, okay? I don't want him to get shot. Cooperate with the police. Go, you know, go with them. And when they give, allow you to make a call, call us. At the end of the day, I want my son to come home. I don't want him shot, okay? So I got booed for saying that. You know, uh, you know, my, I want us to, I want people to stay alive. So um, I have participated in rallies in uh, a rally in, uh, in Bedford. You know, I didn't tell anybody. I just went, you know, and I spoke. And so it, it seems like it's behind the scenes. You know, I've made, I've, you know, I have made reports myself of things that seem suspicious, but I did not have to tell anybody. You know, it just got done. So I am, you know, we just because I'm not out in the open doing everything doesn't mean that we're not doing anything. And Fox Booker, as you know, I got a, a my wife got a call from Beverly County Anderson. My wife talked to me and, and, and immediately I started doing everything I do when I'm trying to deal with a complaint. So uh, to answer your question, yes, you know, if, you know, if something happens in Bloomington, like what happened to Floyd, yes, we're going to, you know, we're going to be out and doing everything. Doing so, the, well, just let me finish this here. Go ahead. When, um, when that, when Vox Booker, you know, as I was doing everything, I got emails from uh, our state president, uh, Barbara Bowling, and our regional director, Jerome Reed. And I was, they were communicating with me the whole time. You know, I was, you know, they were giving me ideas, telling me what I should, you know, who I need to contact and whatnot. And so, you know, I did everything they asked. We tried to set up a meeting with, with Mr. Booker. I invited him, just as we discussed in our NACP meeting, I invited him for lunch. I was one of uh, buying lunch, but I wanted him to come to Second Baptist uh, in the annex. You know, I was going to buy him lunch, just him, him and I, you know. And, you know, I was just going to, you know, I wasn't going to ask. I was just going to say, I'm glad you made it through that. I'm glad that you didn't lose your life and the other gentlemen. And I'm just, you know, um, you know, this is an opportunity for, you know, for change that you, you can speak out and maybe maybe some legislation could come from this, et cetera. But, but I could not hook up with him because, you know, he did not get in contact with me. So, um, and then he was, uh, then Dr. Rose. Well, he got in contact with me, but it was, it was after the time that, we, that I'd asked him to meet me. So, okay. Dr. Hey, Bill, I'm sorry. Let, 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 let me get McQueeba in there real quick because uh, she really has something to say on this. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I joined uh, NAACP about a year ago here locally. And the reason why I decided to join here is because I, I grew up, my, I'm the youngest of 13, so I have nine brothers, three sisters by the same parents, um, strong black parents, they recently, uh, they've been uh, deceased. But we were a part of the NAACP in Fort Wayne. And the reason why we were in part of the NAACP is because my parents wanted us to stay alive too. They were very active. Um, my dad, when he was younger, he was part of the uh, Black Panther Party. So he was really involved in the community. And I wanted to make sure wherever I am, um, I decide to get involved. And I think that you allude to a really um, important part, uh, Clarence, is about the involvement or the level of involvement within the local chapter NAACP. I decided to get involved because I know what the NAACP did for me and my family 
while I was in Fort Wayne on the south side of Fort Wayne. Um, and so it is important to see that, yes, you know, you have individuals that are up in your face, and then you have some people that are behind the scenes working and organizing. Again, I said it last question, we need everybody. No one is the best advocate, right? There's no competition when we're fighting for equality, for equity, for all of us um, that are facing oppression. And so I just, I, I know that I'm here because I want to be, I am a little bit more out in the open and I'm more, um, a little bit more involved, but the there's a, a group of us in the NAACP that are um, putting our, you know, putting our thoughts together, being strategic, working in partnership with uh, a plethora of black um, organizations that are wanting to advance uh, the pe people of color. And so, I just wanted to say that, that there are a group of us that are working actively to um, to essentially bring, some, uh, uh, bring the NAACP um, here like a little bit more upfront, but I, don't, I wouldn't say that they haven't been working. I think that people just think that they haven't been doing what they want. And so that's probably, that's probably the is issue um, here in Bloomington. Um, I'm still involved in the one locally in my Fort Wayne chapter. And they're very adamant about being involved, but there, there's a little uh, different things that they have to, we have to experience. The last thing that I wanted to say is that um, we recommend those listeners, come on and join us. Uh, we need you at the table. Um, we, we, we believe that you are a part of, you know, uh, helping to advance people of color. Um, and we, it's, it's black leadership, of course. And so it's not, it's not just to, for black people, this space is, also for white people to be involved, people of color, mixed races, we need you to be involved too. Again, I don't think you should talk for us, but I think you should talk with us and be in spaces where we are. And we, I mean, we're always recruiting. That's right, we're always recruiting. So uh, I think you should join us. So President Vance, uh, going forward, can we expect the Monroe County branch and AACP to be more visible? Uh, in the community when it comes to fighting for social justice, equality, and responding to some of these high profile shootings or, or anything of that nature? Can we expect to see more of our local branch in AACP? Uh, yes, not only that, it won't just be me. I'm, I'm gonna try to um, let, in, in the past it was just me, but I'm gonna try to involve more of our membership. And, you know, I am able to authorize it, you know, so uh, those that want to, to come front with me and speak out, we will do that. Uh, otherwise, I will be the, the spoke, I'm supposed to be the spokesperson, as you know, I will get more out in the open. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I want to kind of talk about a little bit, a couple of things. We, there is a statement out there about uh, condoning what took place with Vox Booker. Um, uh -huh. Make sure to put that in the editor, get that in a lot of different places. We emailed it to um, certain organizations, different organizations, letting them know that we condone that. And uh, we're in the, in the, of course, our main uh, focus right now will be voting. And so we just got had a, a, a session or a, a meeting this past Tuesday where we're talking about voting, where we're getting, uh, marketing materials ready so that we can meet the needs of our community as far as it relates to voting. We can do as much as we can with, um, we do the protesting, we do all of the 
uh, being in different spaces, but we also want to make sure that we focus on voting. And that's, um, that's what we're doing right now. Uh, I believe the national election day is on September 22nd. So you'll see a lot of movement from the local NAACP chapter. Uh, you mentioned Vox Booker, and uh, we just recently read today uh, that uh, the defendants have formally placed a request of change of venue uh, for the uh, trial or, or for the court proceedings. I, I guess citing that uh, there's been so much exposure, which is not advantageous for their position that they want to move it out of the county. Um, but, that, but that also raises the uh, question as far as the NAACP's and the Black Lives Matter uh, response to the Vox Booker situation. And uh, Jada, if you want to start, and then we'll we'll shift over to the NAACP. Jada or Martin, if you want to comment on that. Um, well, uh, you know, Vox uh, used to be a member of our organization, and so he immediately got in touch with us, and we immediately came to his aid um, as best as we could um, respond to the situation. Um, we helped put pressure on our local prosecutor to review the facts as quickly as possible and um, um, uh, prosecute the individuals who um, committed uh, the violent act against him. Um, and we stood in solidarity with him um, at, I think it was three or four different um, rallies on this, on the, yeah, three, thank you, Martin, on the square for, uh, you know, not just speaking specifically about um, what happened to Vox, though we were there to support him and, and stand up for him, but to to say, look, um, we know that a lot of people are saying that this, you know, this can't happen here. And the reality is, is that um, we are we are one step away from Charlottesville. We are one step away from you know, what's going on um, all over the country. We are not, the Bloomington exceptionalism does not measure up. Um, and that in fact, um, people, black people in this community are being discriminated by the police, are being targeted by white supremacists, uh, myself included, um, uh, leaders of, of, of um, different departments at Indiana U University, uh, different activists in town have been hounded and harassed and um, followed by by white supremacists and so we wanted to draw attention to the larger issue that 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 what happened to Vox is also also things that can happen to the rest of us here locally much like what's happening in other cities can happen to us here locally and that the Bloomington exceptionalism is is a thinly veiled lie um, and that Black people are not safe in Bloomington from white supremacy, from racism, from police brutality, from attacks from, from these extreme far right um, people and, and or just the basic white supremacist uh, ideology that, um, that white folks have ingested over the last several years of Donald Trump and the last several years of, of the infiltration of white supremacy into our society and in the levels that it has. You know, there was also uh, an accompanying oh, Martin. that. Martin oh, wanted well, to say, well, add something. Well, maybe Martin can, can also respond to this. Lost, I think lost in some of this, as well as uh, the attack on Vox Booker and the subsequent protests, there was an incident where a lady careened her vehicle into several of the protesters. I have not heard anything else other than they did make an arrest. I don't know what the disposition of that is. 
Um, I mean, granted, Box was assaulted, but there were some people that were almost taken out instantly by by, by a weaponized yes. vehicle. So if Martin, if you can respond to that as you also reflect on what Jada just said as well. Yeah, well, I, thank you. Yeah, in part, I wanted to also just respond to the, that initial prompt, which is, you know, we're seeing a request for a change of venue because uh, these people who assaulted Mr. Booker uh, feel they're not going to be able to get a, a, a impartial or they're probably hoping for a favorable hearing in, uh, in Bloomington or Monroe County. I would say in large part, that is, that's a sign that the, the um, response from uh, a lot of people, like, you know, like, like Jada said, there were, there were three uh, kind of major actions, uh, two at the courthouse, one in the People's Park. That's a sign those things worked. There were, you know, th that was a demonstration that what those, those men did was not, you know, was not going to be looked upon favorably by a, a, a judge or a jury in uh, Bloomington. So, so, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the power of, of uh, activism and visible activism, you know, this is it. We have made those people who felt uh, empowered to assault um, and attempt to lynch Vox Booker scared. They now don't think that what they did is uh, allowable in Monroe County. They previously thought it was, and now they think it isn't. They're worried that it will not be. And so this is a sign of, of you know, and so to speak to speak to your 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 uh, your second question there, you know, once again, the, the fact that someone decided they needed to drive a vehicle into the middle of one of these demonstrations again is a sign that they don't think that, that that's a desperate act, right? That that's they wouldn't have done that if they, if they were like ah this is just a protest it's it's no big deal. So I think if nothing else, what we're seeing here, these responses, these violent responses uh, or these legal responses are a sign that th there is something coming of, these, of the action that was taken in response to um, Mr. Booker's um, um, assault. And that it's having, um, it, it, it's making you know, these active white supremacists nervous. Um, now, I'm not saying we want to make them nervous and we want to make them respond violently, but again, we, we, we are showing power that they, I think, didn't know we could. Bottom line and, is that they're afraid of going to jail. Well, certainly that. But as I said, they weren't afraid of going to jail when they did it, right? right? Exactly. They weren't afraid to go to jail and it, because they thought, well, this will fly. And by all accounts, when the, when the uh, officers showed up and interviewed them, that impression was reinforced. The officers interviewed the, uh, the assailants before they interviewed uh, Mr. Booker. Uh, and the officers said, oh, well, you can go home. Uh, you know, these, these people who just tried to murder someone are not a threat and sent them home and said, you can file a report on Monday. You know, these people were not, they, they weren't scared of going to jail, but now they are. And again, oh. I, th th that shift, I think, in part is because of the activism that's happened since then. And, and it should also be said that it should be also be said that the the person who uh, ran into people who were leaving the protest they were identified uh, through uh, uh, video footage through uh, photography and through the work of everybody who was at that um, rally uh, banding together and saying oh I they look like this they look like this and coming together and identifying them and so so again. The community banded together in order to do something that 
uh, the police couldn't do and and we're not capable of doing we we found out who they are who they were before the police officers did um, through um, community work and so that's again this sort of reinforces some ideas about how uh, policing works in 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 communities and when communities are strong um, policing perhaps is not as important when communities are stronger um, as we sort of are coming around the the bend as they say and beginning to land this plane as as uh, people say from pulpits um, there's one thing I want to comment on the initial if I'm not mistaken the initial law enforcement representatives that confronted individuals out of Lake Monroe were part of the Department of Natural Resources. Yes. And, and not, yeah, not, not a police department. Um, and they are, why? They, they are they the are, arresting body. They are the legal they are arresting body. body. Though. But yes, the, the they challenge. Are arresting body. They are trained to do uh, elements of policing. So they are, while they are not complete police officers, they still are armed and carry the ability to of powers of arrest, which means they are, um, educated and um um to some to, extent trained mm -hmm. to be able to do that yeah and, and that's a, a point well taken uh, one thing that the hold up initially was waiting for them to finish their initial assessment of the situation which was people were complaining the mayor was complaining the prosecutor i mean everybody was saying hey what's going on what's taking too long and, and maybe that can be explored after all is said and done uh we have a few more minutes remaining and there's there's well too much to talk about way too much and we know that but the one thing that we're sort of confronting now is we're coming up on an, an important date in november and we, we sort of see some light at the end of the tunnel we could just change the guard if you will um and one thing we we want to talk about two things if we could squeeze them in one is the concept of defunding the police department if you ask 10 people you'll probably get seven different responses honestly, uh, because it conjures up, I think, seven different uh, type scenarios in people's minds. And then, and then the other thing is uh, this fighting the uh, potential for suppression of voters. Uh, you know, so that entails early registration or registering, early voting, and, and, and doing your due diligence and just being persistent if you're hitting road, road obstacles to cast your right as a citizen to vote. So, so let's maybe talk quickly about defunding. Can we maybe agree to change the title of this concept as opposed to as opposed to staying with defunding? To me, defunding conjures up something that I think a lot of people are not sitting, are not resting well with. Maybe I'm wrong. I think there's a lot of different angles to it, right? And so I follow a police critic. His name is um, Dr. Ray Sean Ray, who's a, who was who was a sociologist. And he's with the Brookings Institute, and he's a Rubenstein M. Fellow. And he also actually graduated from IU, coincidentally. Um, but that's a critic that I would encourage people to follow into, because he's on the national scope, right? So he's looking at this, and not only that, but he also focused on local things as far as police, um, police um, communities. He's done studies after studies over, I think, over 100 or 500 uh, police departments. Uh, so that's something I would recommend the viewers to consider um, researching and looking into his um, statement. But, but um, so when it comes to like defunding the police, a lot of people, like you were saying, have a different angle, like it's reallocating the funds. 
to certain areas, to the communities, to these different communities. And I wanted to also highlight our community young activists, Enough is Enough, who did a rally on June 5th, to get the community aroused, to get um, us into this umbrella of fighting and standing up for one another. So I just want to give a huge shout out to those young activists that are out there doing the work. I mean, I'm so proud of them. And um, they're just constantly doing the work and they're still doing the work. But I think that as far as the um, defunding of police goes, it's about reallocating funds and how that can look in different communities. And I think it's really imperative that we pay attention to communities, right? So there's different communities that have um, different experiences with the police department. And, and it's also uh, different communities that have experiences with how they um, interact with the police department. And so my uncle was actually a sheriff in Fort Wayne. And so he had this thing with duality, right? And so he's a black man, very strong black man. And he still was one of those individuals who did not, he went into the police force to change, try to change. We all know that white supremacy is rooted in every entity within America, especially the police system. And so I think that his, uh, I was able to really sit and learn from him because uh, he wanted to fight, he fought for um, equality when he, he was trying to build up a community. And so that's what I think about with defunding the police. Okay, okay. We uh, only have a couple minutes left. I want to go ahead and give Jay to be the last word. Okay. Um, so I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the concept of defund the police. Black Lives Matter as a national organization and Black Lives Matter as a local organization, we believe in police abolition. Um, and what that means is that eventually we, are, we want to do away with the entire concept and system of policing people, meaning that we have had a complete societal change so that we are um, uh, mitigating harm before it can happen. So we're intervening before it can happen. When people are poor and they steal because they, they need things in order to um, uh, gain wealth, that we um, are, are changing the concept of what wealth is. When people are, have drug addictions and they um, seek, are out seeking drugs or that we, we, we use um, our harm reduction and we decriminalize um, aspects around um, those who are, who are drug addicted and, and drug dependent, um, that we intervene in, in situations before abusive relationships turn into domestic violence that police need to be called in. So that we are completely changing our systems um, in, in not just the police system, but all of these other social systems um, to help support communities. And we already know what this looks like. All you have to do is look at rich suburban neighborhoods and, and you can see what no policing looks like. Rich suburban neighborhoods in, in, in Bloomington, Indiana, if you go to what's called Hoosier Hills um, or Hoosier Acres, which is those million dollar homes on the east side of town, you don't see police officers running through there um, stopping and talking about domestic violence or stopping and talking about kids in the street playing basketball and what are you doing here out past curfew or whatever that means. You know, we already have these models of, of how no policing can function. And so when we're talking about defunding the police, we are talking about that reallocation of funds that are being, that police budgets are bloated. Police budgets are huge, they're expansive. Our own police chief in the recent meetings 
um, was talking about having tons and tons of gear that he replaces on a yearly cycle, on a two-year cycle, on a three-year cycle that he never uses, that never get used, that never gets deployed. We have a military assault vehicle, the Linco Bearcat, which has been deployed under 10 times since it was purchased. It's a 250, or, or, yeah, sorry, it's a, it's a quarter of a million dollar uh, vehicle that isn't actually being used for the thing that it said it was supposed to be being used for and or at the need requirement that the police officer said that they needed it to be at. We're not talking about decreasing police budgets in terms of uh, not paying police officers what they are worth. But what we're talking about is directing them to what they are good at, which is law enforcement. And so that involves enforcing of the law, which requires a certain amount of threat and violence to go with it. And so we're saying, okay, they don't need to um, be involved in domestic violence situations because that is something that other organizations um, like social service organizations are better equipped to deal with, that perhaps they don't need to be involved in situations dealing with harm reduction for people who are homeless or, or people who are drug dependent because they escalate those situations and make them worse. What in reality, those people need treatment, they need help, and they need people who um, understand where they are at in society and can give them the help that they need to um, you know, not die today. And so that the entire concept of defunding the police and abolition of the police is a concept that it's, yes, people are throwing out buzzwords. You're right, uh, Clarence, that it, it seems like a buzzword that's happening. And I'm um, just finish one second, but it's, it's not fully understood because everyone just wants to talk about the buzzwords and they don't want to talk about the transformative society that Black Lives Matter is interested in. Well, the, the problem that I have with it is that, uh, yes, it has not been thoroughly clarified to the extent that we are allowing individuals to take it and use it as a, a wedge issue in the upcoming presidential election and totally being used for the intent for which it should not be purposed. It's being repurposed against those who are coming up with these great ideas. And but unfortunately- so was, the, so was the voters' rights laws. So, so you know, you know, no, so this every one, major social change has been, right. has been done as a wedge right. issue. Right, but, but when this is coupled with an imagery of uh, protests that have gotten out of control, not even by the, the organizers of the protest, but by external elements, and it's all being spun against what people really want this to be used for. That's a problem, but we don't have time with eight weeks to go to, I mean, I wish that issue could be tabled until a new administration comes on board. We all know that there needs to be change. Now, that kind of speaks towards making sure, and I'll just say this to everyone who has not done so, register to vote and vote for the candidate of your choice. But please register to vote and vote early for the candidate of your choice. We are out of time, we're over time, and all that just speaks of is we need to do this again. So uh, if I can get a, I see heads nodding and I see thumbs going up and I see McQueeba shaking her head or nodding her head. Okay, she's nodding her head. Okay, she wants to come back because we need to discuss this some more. Um, and we kind of knew when Wayman and I talked about this, will we solve all the world's problems? No, but will we at least unlayer un un some of the issues we have today? We wish to thank Bill Vance, president of the Monroe County branch of the NAACP, McQueeba Reese, a MSW social justice advocate and assistant director of the Kelly Office of Diversity Initiatives, Jada B, a social activist and core council member of the local Black Lives Matter 
here in Bloomington and Martin Law, an associate instructor at Indiana University, a local musician. We need to talk about that next time in our in our next conversation. And another we're in a band counselor. together. <laughs> we're in a band together. A, a woman of multiple talents. So are you lead singing <laughs> and he's playing? Actually. Okay. Uh, we're going to have an interesting show next time. And uh, Martin is also another core council member of Black Lives Matter here in Bloomington. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have any ideas for this program, we would like to hear them. Send your emails directly to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. That email address, once again, bring it on at wfhb.org. And along with a program idea, if you have an event or happening that we should know about the African community, African-American community, uh, please send that information also to the Bring It On staff at bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is the gentleman you just heard speaking, Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Cade Young. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And William uh, also is handling all of our promotional graphics uh, for our shows and save those graphics. They'll be historical uh, one day. And uh, we just want to thank everyone involved for coming on today. Um, thank you for, William, I know you're traveling while you've been communicating with us. We do appreciate it. I'm Clarence Boone, and be sure, be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.